Did you get that, John? Did you hear that? Yes. Okay. Can you? <clears throat> Hey, Dale, would you mind lifting them up? Shelly, can you pray for her?
Okay, I'm going to go and pray for us, okay? Lord Jesus, we praise you for um, just this, this fellowship. Lord, it's just, um, I, don't, I don't know if we know how blessed we are sometimes to just come together and just enjoy each other, God, and sharpen each other and, and um, study your word so freely. And I uh, pray tonight that um, you would accomplish what you want to accomplish, Lord, and um, that you would change our hearts. Um, if there's anything in, in there, Lord, that we... Um, we need to be changed on, Lord. We need to be softened and uh, pray for these people that are trapped in this very satanic, uh, very demonic uh, religion, Lord, and, and ask that you would um, open their eyes, that you'd remove blindness, that you would give them dreams and visions, Lord God, and that you would continue the work that you're already doing there. And I uh, pray you'd give us just a better insight tonight and um, teach us what you want us to teach, uh, teach us, Lord. Just be our teacher. We love you and praise you. In your name, Jesus. Amen. Does everybody have a handout? Uh, there should be three of them. <clears throat> Anybody need one? Are we good? Hey, hun- hey, Lori, honey, <laughs> would, you, would you mind grabbing a couple? <clears throat> thanks. So the stapled ones, okay, thanks. So the stapled ones outline, that'll kind of follow along what we're, what we're talking about tonight. We'll do our best to get through it. It's, it's a lot. Um, hopefully I'm not trying to squeeze too much in. There's a lot of statistics and stuff, so we'll go through those quickly. The other two handouts are just talk about them or cover them um, quite as much, but one is about the Nation of Islam, which is a really kind of a subgenre, like a, a separate sect or denomination, if you will, of, of Islam that's really centered in the United States. And um, so that's, that's for you. And then another one that's kind of statistics about Islam. Um, what happens when... Um, Muslims um, in force come into a culture and kind of what happens to a society at that point and it kind of shows different percentages and then examples of countries that have those that percentage of, of Muslims there um, and well you'll see kind of where that where that applies so last week um, we covered a lot of history we covered a lot of information hopefully it wasn't too too much too overwhelming um, but that some of the keys you know understanding Muhammad's life um, is so critical because the entire religion was created by him, formed by him. The Quran ended when he died, so he, he literally formed the entire Quran. Um, and really, everything in Islam, um, especially modern-day Islam, just even in the last couple decades, um, is going back to Muhammad's life, and we'll, we'll talk about that. So you'll see there's kind of this outline here. We'll try to do an overview. I have sort of a few premises that we'll kind of be operating from. I'll try to cover those. Um, we're going to talk about some statistics, um, some key beliefs. I think understanding kind of their beliefs and sort of like what their day-to-day life looks like um, could be helpful for us. We'll talk about kind of Sharia law. That's a kind of a hot topic um, around the world, especially in Europe right now. Uh, we'll talk about um, jihad, radical Islam, um, another hot topic, just you know, key words that you guys have heard before. And try to make sense of it. You know, what what do we what do we do what do we do with this? You know, we turn on the news, and that's you know, that's that's all we see. It seems like in a lot of in a lot of times. Um, and uh, I want to have kind of a <clears throat> try to have a balanced view that's not like fear mongering. It's not. Um, it's really how we as Christians should be responding to it. Um, and then hopefully we'll get to just a few minutes at the end. Just talk about just some tips on how we can share with some, some Muslims, with Muslims that have become saved that give us some tips on, on how to do that. So, um, <clears throat> again, just like last week format, if uh, you guys have any questions or whatever, raise your hand, get my attention, and we'll, we'll stop and, and talk about some things, okay? Um, 
All right, so uh, three things I want to cover kind of just right at the outset that, that I think will hopefully frame everything that we're talking about. Um, there's so much in the news about, um, there, there's, these, there's these kind of two extremes, I think. There's one that says Islam is a religion of peace, you know, so how do we reconcile that with all of these terrorists that are doing it in the name of Islam? You know, they blow themselves up or they shoot somebody and they, they're shouting out, God is great, you know, Allah Akbar, um, as they do it. How do you reconcile that? You know, are they true Muslims? Are they not true Muslims? Um, what about all the other Muslims, the vast majority that are peaceful? Um, how do you reconcile that? that that's, um, and, and the extreme is saying, well, no, this is a religion of peace. That's one extreme. The other extreme is to say, we need to kick out all Muslims, we need to exile them, we need to not have any relationship with them at all. Um, and we need to find kind of where, I think, where God wants us to be in all of that. So with all the rhetoric and all that junk, we need to figure out kind of where we, where we need to be. Um, but to start off with, I think there's a couple things to understand. Um, over time, Islam has built up various schools of thought and scholarship. Um, if you remember... Um, Authority, the authority structure in Islam and the culture <clears throat> is extremely important. Um, and they've trended actually towards being more peaceful, actually, in the last um, hundred years or so in their scholarship. So the, the way they're interpreting, they're hermeneutic. So when they're interpreting the Quran, it's actually trended more peaceful from the time of Muhammad. It's become a little bit more moderate. But in recent times, and this is a theory that's been put out by a lot of scholars, because of the availability of a lot of the early works, so the the, uh, the Sunnah, which is the, the the works of Muhammad or the uh, the life of Muhammad, um, is much more widely available. So, even 50 years ago, um, I remember listening to some pretty early on about 10 years ago, and I really started getting interested in this topic. Um, uh, there was one of these guys that I liked. His name was Dr. Robert Morey. Um, and, and he had an, a hadith. He had an entire volume of hadith. Last week we talked about that. That's all, it's sort of bio, biographical. It's his sayings, it's uh, things like that. It's things that they take very, very seriously. Um, they, they put it right underneath the Quran in terms of importance of their religion. It really tells them how to practice their religion, really, because the Quran doesn't actually do that. Um, but up until fairly recent times, it was actually really difficult to even get your hand on one of these. Um, early biographies, things like that, you couldn't get your hands on them. Um, and it was actually pretty rare that he had had one. Um, and, but so, recent times, we have the internet. You can go to sahibakari.com and you can actually see the entire nine-volume Bakari set of, of hadith, which is their most trusted hadith. <clears throat> um, you can get uh, biographies, whole, whole slew of stuff. And so part of the, the theory goes is that um, Muslims have more access to this early information than they've ever had before. There's more scholarship, there's more, um, there's more uh, literacy around and understanding around a lot of these topics. And those early works show what Muhammad's life was really like. And so at that point, a Muslim can say, <clears throat> okay, Muhammad was a psychopath, <clears throat> and they have a couple different options. They can say, well, I'm still a Muslim. I still, I'm going to take the more modern interpretation of Islam and just, it's going to be more moderate. Or I could actually go deeper into more orthodox Islam and go kind of the more crazy radical route, which is actually to follow what Muhammad did. Um, and that's when we see this radical kind of fringe group starting to grow at a pretty exponential rate. Um, and so there, there's, there was this extreme dependency on imams and on teachers and on mosques to get this information over the last 13 centuries or so after Muhammad's life. But now it's just becoming, there's just this massive 
uh, amount of information. So just a real-life example is um, ISIS <clears throat> has put out a magazine. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. It's called uh, Dabik. I don't recommend Googling it. Um, but it actually is a magazine that promotes everything that they're doing. And all throughout it is stuff from the Hadith, stuff from the Quran, stuff that you would normally not get from a typical mosque. And it's promoting these things, but it's through their own scriptures, their own literature. So it's not like they're just making up some new radical form. They're going back to the roots. And so I just wanted to put that out there sort of as a premise, is that um, because one, I'm, one of the things I'm going to get to, I think, towards the end, is you'll see that um, is the people that are practicing that radical Islam are really, they really are practicing Islam. They're just going back to the truest form of it. They're, they're, the, most, they're the most orthodox believers in it. Um, you'll still have that moderate group, but anyway, I just wanted to put that out there to start with. Another key thing to understand is uh, the petrodollar, so oil in the Middle East. Um, the discovery in, of oil in the Middle East has propelled Saudi Arabia and their neighboring countries um, into major players in the world economy over the last 100 years. Uh, the huge influx of, ca- of cash has helped the Saudis buy influence, um, to buy influence around the world. The Saudis are major stakeholders in various news and media, parent companies, you know, vast amounts of real estate in the West, uh, including News Corp is a media organization that they own some. <clears throat> that's Fox News, by the way. Um, <clears throat> the Saudis provide ma- the majority of funds for opening new mosques and religious centers in the Europe and the United States. So if, if a new mosque o- opens up, and you see this with like the Mormon church, it's just all of a sudden you're in a community and boom, there's like a brand new Mormon church. It's like, where did it come from? Um, mosques are opening like that. They're almost 100% being um, funded by the Saudis. Uh, they're coming in very strong and uh, very, very big on evangelism and kind of infiltrating communities in that way. The Saudis are also the primary financial sponsor for Sunni-based terrorist groups. So uh, Salafi jihadism, which we'll talk about in a few minutes, um, ISIS, Al-Qaeda, the Nusra Front, and a whole slew of other Sunni terrorist groups. The Saudis fund them largely uh, because of the amount of cash and and capital they have. Um, One last thing before we get into statistics. Non-practicing Muslims make up about 70%. Um, so the majority of Muslims in the world today are non-practicing. They're only identified that way due to heritage, culture, or birth. Um, I view this very similar to Christianity. Um, some may know a few verses of the Bible, but they would really never study it exegetically in any way. So, you know, you look at the statistics of how many Christians are in the United States. I think it's somewhere like 230 million. And it's like, that doesn't really sound right, does it? <laughs> you know what I mean? For Bible-believing Christians... It's, that's kind of a shocking number. And if you look at uh, in the world, it's supposed to be 2.2 billion Christians in the world. Um, the large majority of those are not Bible-believing Orthodox. They're really a name-only, birth-only culture. That's, their, that's kind of their heritage. And Islam is really the same way. Um, 90% of Muslims actually do not speak Arabic. Uh, the majority have never read the Quran of that group. Um, as part of their culture, they may have memorized certain prayers uh, or surahs. Those are chapters of the Quran. But similar to Latin as used in the Catholic Church, it's very liturgical and not actually understood. So um, kids will be taught, you know, a surah or a prayer like the Shahada, but it's, it's a lot of times in Arabic, which is a language they don't understand. And just like Catholics might learn something in Latin and they don't really understand it, they'll, they'll talk about it, they'll um, not talk about it, but they'll recite it in church. And it's really more of a religious kind of a practice. <clears throat> 
And so similar to nominal Christians, there are nominal Muslims um, that believe if they follow some sort of tradition of Islam, try to be a good Muslim, try to be a good person, then they'll go to heaven. So that same concept in Christianity that we see where there's this big group that call themselves Christians that don't really have probably never even opened up their Bible, don't have any kind of real theological understanding. There's a lot of Muslims like that too. Um, and it very works, works-based. So. so a few initial statistics. Um, Islam is the fastest growing religion in the world. Um, it is the second largest. That's fairly recently in the last three decades or so. Um, there are roughly 1.7 billion Muslims. Uh, it's about 25% of the world right now. Um, 2.2 billion as, as opposed to 2.2 billion Christians. By 2020, um, there will be more Muslims than Christians in the world. Um, worldwide, in the past decade, there's been a huge spike of growth in the last decade or so. Um, Islam has grown by 235%. Um, there are about 30 to, this number is really hard to track down, but um, 30 to 100,000 immigrants each year to the U.S. Um, the Asia-Pacific region actually makes up the largest grouping. It's 80, uh, 62% of the Muslim population of the whole world lives in this, this area. So that includes Indonesia, India, Pakistan, Iran, Turkey. Um, that's all considered that Asia-Pacific region. Indonesia actually has the largest population of Muslims around the world. Um, India is actually about to take that over, though. In about 20, 25 years, India is actually going to be the country with the, the uh, most amount of Muslims. 45% uh, of Africa is Muslim. Very, very high densities in all the countries that you'd expect. Saudi Arabia, Iran, Iraq, um, etc. Um, 10% of Europeans will be Muslim by 2050. That number is skyrocketing because of immigration. Um, Christianity is growing. So you have your global population growth, right? That's that you look at everything. Christianity, um, as compared to the global population growth, has 0% growth. So it's kind of matching uh, overall glo um, global population, whereas um, Islam is growing 40% um, above that, that baseline. 3.3 um, million Muslims in America, um, and supposedly 263 million Christians. Um, the, the birth rate is what is making everything kind of skyrocket. And if you look at multiple generations out, um, a lot of the studies go out to 2050. You look at those studies and the, the numbers are just staggering. And it's because of the birth rate. So Muslim birth rates, 3.1 children per family, as opposed to 2.3, and that's for the entire world. So that includes cultures that, are, that have lots and lots of children. So um, growing very, very quickly. All right, so I'm sure everybody's heard of Shia, Sunni, it feels, it feels like in the last 10 years or so, there's a lot more information out there about some of these basic kind of things, um, but I'm sure you guys have heard that in the news, um, especially with the Iraq war, that really became a big thing because um, that was a major problem in Iraq was the, the, the Shia-Sunni kind of conflicts there. Um, but just to give you some kind of basic background on that, um, Sunnis make up about 85% the Muslim world, so the vast majority. Shia about 10%, and then from there you've got all these other sects that kind of go on down. Um, Iran is probably the biggest. Um, they're a Shiite Islamic Republic. They're 95% Shia, so huge majority. Um, other majority Shiite countries, Azerbaijan, uh, Bahrain, and Yemen. 
Um, and so the, the differences between these, we talked about this a little bit last week, but it really goes all the way back to um, the few caliphs right after Muhammad's life. So the Shias believe that there was a spiritual and political succession through Ali. If you remember from last week, he was the fourth caliph. There was, there was four right after Muhammad. Um, the Sunnis believe that those four are the correct ones. The Shia believe that Ali was really the rightful guy. And so these, in uh, Shia Islam, they're called imams. So in Sunni, an imam is just like a teacher. Like, so you go to a mosque and an imam is a teacher. In Shia Islam, imam is a very, very high level um, authority. And there was only 12 of them. And they ended in um, 868 AD. So it went up to number 12. Um, Those of you that have studied a little bit about um, Islamic eschatology have probably heard this this term before, the 12th imam. Um, There's a book about it by Joel Rosenberg. Um, or the Mahdi. Um, and it was interesting for me to find out that the 12th Imam was actually a real person. Um, he, was, he was born in, um, or lived, I can't remember where the, if he was born or died at the, around that time, um, or 868 AD. So then he, supposedly, he mysteriously disappeared. Um, and they, what, they, what the Shias say is that he's still in hiding somewhere and that he'll return at the last day. Um, and he's actually going to come out of the ground with Jesus and then declare the, the end times. So that's, that's what the Mahdi is, the 12th Imam. Um, so that's, that's kind of one of their core beliefs. The Sunnis belief they're based on the tradition of Muhammad as found in the Quran and the Hadith. Um, Sunni comes from the word Sunnah, which we've talked about. Sunnah is the recorded actions of Muhammad's life. So they really rely heavily on the Hadith um, and that, those original Hadiths, especially Bukhari. And these, these two sects are just constantly warring against each other. There's been constant war um, since that time. So, any questions so, before we get into some of the core day-to-day kind of beliefs? Go ahead, Annabelle. The Sunni. They don't. No, they don't. Most of the time, they actually don't... One doesn't believe the other is a Muslim, even. So they're very strong, um, strongly opposed to each other. So Sometimes they're uh, allied in terms of two countries if they have the same common goal. So a common goal might be to wipe out Israel. And so they might kind of be allied together in that, in that sense. But for the most part, they're very, very much at odds. Um, okay, so let's get into the five pillars. Um, these are generally observed by most Muslims. Remember... Um, Islam is not monolithic. It's very, there's so many different sects and so much different things going on, but generally, these are the, the pillars that are accepted. The Shahada prayer, this is what we talked about last week. The prayer goes, there is no God but Allah, and Muhammad is his messenger. They will say this thousands or tens of thousands of times in their lifetime as a devout Muslim. It's said over children right as they're born. It's said over people as they die. It's very, very holy to them. Um, and if you, it, in most theology from both sects, if you say the Shahada three times and you mean it in your heart, that you're a Muslim. So that's an incredibly important prayer. Um, the, uh, the second pillar of Islam is Salat. These are the five daily prayers. Um, these are set prayers, typically, that Muslims are supposed to say. Um, all Muslims are supposed to face Mecca and Saudi Arabia when praying. Uh, they should pray on a prayer mat. Um, they should wash before they pray. And they're very fixed movements. If you've seen, you know, large groups of people praying in a mosque, they're all going down at the same time. It's all, it's very, like, orchestrated almost. Um, and it's just that, that same, same movement, uh, usually same prayers being recited. 
Um, as we talked about last week, it's, it's very religious. It's like liturgical in, in a sense. There's not, it's not like praying from your heart. There is places for that, but this, this Salat is really more of an orchestrated thing. That's not, it's not like praying to Allah from your heart, asking him for something like the same way that we would pray to God. And it really, like I said, you know, for, for practicing Muslims, it encompasses their entire day. They'll schedule things. There's apps that will remind you, hey, it's time to pray. You know, they'll tell you where to face, and then it's, you, you know, um, it's, it's a very big deal. Um, okay, number three is zakat. This is sort of like equivalent to their tithe, 2.5% uh, gift. Um, it's giving a fixed proportion of your income, typically to the local mosque, but they have, there's a lot of freedom there. You can actually give it to um, Islamic charity. You can do lots of different things with that. Uh, number four is psalm. That's fasting. So this is typically um, during Ramadan. Um, there's, they re- refrain from food or drink um, during the month of Ramadan, during daylight hours. So they can eat, they'll eat in the morning typically and then in the evening. And then it concludes with a huge feast uh, and it's actually a holiday. They all get together as a community. It's called Ed al-Fitr. And um, I don't think that's the way you pronounce it, but um, that's a really, really big part. Uh, I remember Nabil Qureshi, I mentioned him last week, said this was like one of the biggest holidays of their entire, um, their entire year. And then we have the Hajj, which is uh, number five. You've probably heard of this. This is the pilgrimage to Mecca. We talked about it quite a bit last week. Um, if you can afford it, you, you're supposed to do it once in your life. Um, it's a six-day annual festival. This year, it's like about the second week of September. Next year, um, it's like last week of August or first couple days of September. It's based on their uh, lunar calendar. Millions of people go to this every year. It's a massive industry. All the hotels are booked up for miles and miles around. Uh, many of the ones that can't afford that will camp out. Um, and so what you do is you circle the Kaaba seven times, um, then you, I mean, we talked about that this um, last week as well. You can go outside. If you, if you choose, you can throw stones at the devil. Uh, and then if you're able to get inside, you can actually kiss the black stone. This is that meteorite. Um, and one of the interesting things is that uh, Muslims don't even really understand why they do that. And, um, but in the Hadith, it talks about how they used to do that before Muhammad. So it was a, really kind of a pagan practice that they carried over. Uh, they believe that if you see the Kaaba and you, you do this during Hajj, that your sins will be forgiven. So that's why it's such a major pillar. Um, we mentioned last week, too, hundreds of people get trampled every year because it's just such a big... There's so many people. There's not really any controls. And imagine imagine literally a million people in the square trying to circle this Kaaba. And if you've ever seen a picture of it, it's insane. I mean, it, you can't really tell what it is, but if you look super close, you can see these are individual people, their little heads, and it's just, it's wild. It's just this crazy thing. And then outside of this uh, initial circle, you'll see more and more people. There's a picture I saw online that they said that in this picture, there's three million people in this picture. So it's got to be probably the biggest gathering of people in a given area on earth. <clears throat> couple of other pillars, depending on your sect that you're in, uh, dawah um, is evangel- evangelism. Um, and that's just, like I said, it really depends on the sect that you're in. Some care more about it than others. Uh, and then we have jihad, which we'll talk about. Um, it means holy war. But the more modern inter- interpretation is to strive or to like apply yourself to be a good person, be a good Muslim. All right, so six articles of faith. These are really similar, but it's more about their theology. So number one, and this is fundamental, very, very important, it's Tawheed, and it's the belief in one God, it's monotheism, Um, extremely important. And remember, Muhammad really took 
uh, what was so common in that day, which is polytheism, and really changed it into monotheism. And so that, that first surah that he got from the angel Gabriel was all about one God, that monotheistic belief. And so that's why it's such a key thing. Um, it's one of the reasons why the Trinity is so offensive. They don't understand the Trinity. They really believe that the Trinity is a polytheistic belief, and they will debate you till they're blue in the face on that because they just do not, they don't think that it's possible that God could be one but three persons. Um, okay, number two, um, angels or the unseen. As we mentioned before, you know, Muhammad was very... Um, very superstitious. And a lot of those kind of beliefs are carried through. You can see it in the Hadith, in the Quran as well. Um, but they believe that, they literally believe that they have one angel on each shoulder. So there's a good angel and there's a bad angel. Um, and jinn come in very, very heavily into their theology. Um, they can infil- infiltrate people's lives through dreams and visions. Um, I mentioned that book last week. Um, we were praying for Austin. It's called Dreams and Visions. It's by Tom Doyle. And um, I'm reading through these stories. I'm not all, all the way through it, but there was a story about this lady that she was getting these visions from Jesus and she was talking to a Christian and trying to understand everything. But in, in, in between that, and this was about a six-month period, in between that, she was getting these visions and dreams from demons as well. And she'd, ha- she'd have this recurring one <clears throat> where a jinn would sit on her chest in the middle of the night and she couldn't breathe and she was totally restricted. She couldn't move. Um, and I... I I've read about that. It's pretty, I think it's a pretty common thing. So they um, will receive these, these visions. They could be good. They could be bad. Um, and it's just part of, part of life. Um, third article of faith, acceptance of the prophets. Um, there are 25 prophets mentioned in the Quran. There's allusions to more. But examples are Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Jesus, etc. <clears throat> Muhammad is clearly, obviously, the most important prophet to them. Uh, belief in the Quran. Um, the Quran was sent, as we talked about last week, by dictation from Allah, then to Gabriel, and then to Muhammad, uh, and then it was preserved perfectly on tablets in heaven. Uh, the resurrection, and this is tied into the, the last days. They call it Kiyama. Uh, that's the last day, the day of judgment. And really, you know, there, there is, again, a lot of wide um, different beliefs on this, but the most common um, is that Jesus is going to return from Damascus, and he's going to start the latter days and impose Islam on, on everybody. Jesus will then go and destroy all the crosses around the world. He'll, dis- he'll kill all the infidels. Um, and, and really, most of this information from esch- their eschatology, again, comes from the Hadith. And then number six, um, this is really key. It really speaks to kind of the, uh, the character of Allah. It's the predestination of all things, good and bad. Um, so if you remember from last week, you know, Allah can be very deceptive. Um, he can change his mind a lot. Um, salvation is deeds-based, and Allah really ultimately can kind of do whatever he wants. But he has predestined those things. And, um, but the difference between that and Christianity is he can change his mind later if he, if he feels like it. And it's really kind of a contradiction. Um, but it's something they really believe in. The, the whole doctrine of abrogation where Allah can speak something and then he can come back later and change it, um, it kind of ties in there a little bit. Um, and then as part of that topic, um, heaven and hell is talked about a lot in the Quran and the Hadith. Um, and it's very, um, it's very like, heaven in particular is very sensual. It's all about how you're, you're, you're going to feel physically. Um, and a lot of, again, a lot of that comes from the Hadith. And hell is the same way. Um, it's very carnal. It's very, um, 
Um, it's very gross, really, in its description of, of how people will be punished. And, you know, you'll, you'll, you'll have your skin flayed off, and then you'll be beaten, and then it'll all happen again. You know, and that's, that's your eternity. Um, and very, very descriptive and, and carnal in how they talk about that. Okay. We're jumping around a little bit, I know. But um, hopefully this is all leading more towards um, current day events and some things like that and kind of what we're facing here. Um, Sharia law. Um, anybody not heard of Sharia law? Um, pretty, pretty common thing to hear about these days, um, especially in Europe. Um, and really what, what Sharia is, it's, it's God's law. It literally means path to water. Um, and what it is, it's a framework for public or private, a public or private legal system based on Islam. So when Sharia law comes on in force, it will completely replace any other kind of legal system that's, that's already there. Um, depending on how you grade the hadith, so you know, wh- where you put the different hadith in terms of the, um, um, the different doctrines and things like that in there, Sharia can look kind of different. It could be just very social in nature, so like marriage and divorce and some basic things like that, and it can go all the way to the extreme, which is corporal punishment, death, um, you know, very severe punishments. Um, there are currently 58 countries that apply some form of Sharia law. This doesn't include some of the European countries that have started um, opening up Sharia law courts. Um, this next section talks about that a little bit. Um, Sharia courts, um, I really believe, are coming to the West. They've been coming uh, pretty quickly um, lately. Um, probably the most famous case is in Britain. Uh, I don't know if you've, you guys have heard that, but there are a lot of Sharia court laws in some of these um, pockets of Islamic uh, people, you know, people groups that, that live in Britain and other parts of Europe. But what they do is they, they primarily, at, the, at this point, deal with more civil cases. So the vast majority of cases they're dealing with are marriage and divorce cases. Um, and so they would go, and then a local imam would give a judgment, and that judgment can be binding um, according to uh, British law. Um, but the, the one difference, at least at the moment, um, that decision is called a fatwa, by the way, but the one difference is, at the moment, you could go and actually get a different, like if, you know, let's say you're going through divorce court in, in, um, in Sharia, Sharia court, you can go, and if you don't really like their judgment, you can actually get that overruled by another, by another um, imam. So, but anyway, that's, it's definitely coming. Um, and precedent, I believe, is really building. So if you see, as you see these court, uh, courts coming down with these decisions, they're influencing precedent in, in the regular court systems. Um, there was a case in New Jersey about five years ago that they ruled in favor of a man that beat his wife because of his religious beliefs in, in Sharia law. It was later overturned in a higher court. But that's an example, I believe, of what kind of things are potentially coming based on a religious belief. Um, so... Some of the examples of civil law um, in Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia really is kind of the, um, the case study for Sharia because they have fully implemented uh, what they believe is a, um, a true Sharia system. There, Iran is another example, but it's quite a bit different. Sunni is, uh, since they had a larger group of people, um, they represent more. This is more common to see this type of Sharia law. Um, and so here's some examples of, of civil, civil law. A uh, woman can only have one husband, but men can have four, four wives. Um, a female a, uh, heir only inherits half. Um, a w- women cannot drive cars. That's pretty common to see in, in Saudi Arabia, especially. 
Um, women can't div- get divorced without a judgment, the fatwa, but a man can say divorce three times and he's officially divorced at that point. Um, beating your wife is condoned um, and widely accepted by the Muslim world, um, especially in places like Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia. Um, you can actually go to like YouTube. They'll give you instructional videos on how to, on how to do this. It's, and it's just, and I, I say that just because um, it's so common. It's just viewed as such a normal part of their lives that, that they have these just regular like how-to kind of videos, you know, uh, which is just shocking, I know, but that's, it's just such a normal part. And so these videos will tell you, you know, when you're beating your wife, you know, make sure you don't use too big of a stick, make sure you don't hit her in the face, make sure you don't do these, these types of things. Um, very, very normal part of life. Um, and then as we get into more of the criminal law, more corp- corporal punishment, and again, this really depends on the country, but Saudi Arabia really is that, that kind of main um, case study on it because it's just very common. Um, any kind of apostasy, so criticizing Islam, uh, the Quran, Allah, Muhammad is punishable by death. Uh, banditry is something that they, they lump together, murder and theft together, um, and in some countries they'll crucify you for that. Um, automatic death penalty for blasphemy, treason, murder, homosexuality. Um, 80 lashes for slander or drinking alcohol. Um, death by stoning for adultery. Um, cutting off a hand for stealing. It's very, very common. Um, um, one of the things that's been widely publicized about women's rights is that a woman cannot claim that she was raped unless there is actually four witnesses. And in Saudi Arabia, if the woman comes to the court and she has her four witnesses lined up and one of them doesn't show up, the court's going to say, you're an adulteress, and then they'll, they'll kill her. Um, so they have to have those four witnesses, and that's why the vast majority of those don't even come to the courts at all uh, because of that reason. So it's kind of a free-for-all, unfortunately, there. Um, so as you'll see, with Sharia, the solution in Islam for so many problems is violence. Uh, the solution for an unbeliever is violence. The solution for apostasy is violence. The solution for criticism of Islam is violence. The solution for women that displease you um, as, as a husband is violence. The solution for sinners is violence. And according to the sources, um, as we saw last week, this is really how Muhammad and the early Muslims dealt with our problems, is, is very largely with violence, and it's extremely well documented. And so you can start to see how modern Muslims that have access to this information, to the Hadith and these early sources, you can start to see how they believe they're practicing the most orthodox, um, true version of Islam, and they're carrying out these things that Muhammad did. Um, And it really, at that point, kind of becomes this, it looks like a 7th century kind of a culture. It's very medieval in the way they deal with problems. you guys seen that handout that uh, kind of explains what happens as uh, Islam kind of comes into a culture and things like that? We won't go all the, go all the way through it, but uh, if you take a look at it, it'll kind of give you an example of when a certain percentage comes in, they'll start demanding certain things. They'll start demanding Sharia law. They'll start demanding certain types of food. Um, there'll be a lot of things that start happening, and there's a lot of examples of countries and uh, of, you know, really in modern day what, what really happens. So, um, any questions or anything? Yeah. Why does everybody but President Obama call it ISIS? Why does he use the term ISIS? Have you seen they've been starting using Dash, too, as well? <clears throat> Dash is like the Arabic name for it. I don't know exactly. The, the, uh, 
Let me see if I can remember this. The ISIS stands for Islamic State in Syria and Iraq. ISIL is something in the Levant. Levant. No, I guess I don't really. No, no, it's fine. I've looked it up too, and I'm not. Do you have an answer, Mike? Okay. Okay. I'm not surprised, yeah, but, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah, makes sense. Okay. Anything else? Any other questions? That's called halal. It's like they're special. Yeah. Yeah, the argument was that he was adhering to his religious belief. Yeah, so. And, that, and that's, we'll, we'll get a little further on, but I believe that precedent is, is coming. Um, and they're, they're using a couple different ways to kind of infiltrate. Um, one is through hate speech laws that you can't really say anything. Um, and so, yeah, we'll, we'll get to that. So, all right, let's keep going. All right, so jihad, radical Islam. Uh, I want to try to be super careful to not get overly political in any way. That's really not my heart at all. Um, you know, to offer us some kind of a state-wide solution. I think what I'm trying to do is just give you guys information and then um, kind of present it in a way that um, lets God deal with us and change our hearts and give us his perspective of what that looks like. So, all right, so what is jihad? We hear the term all the time. Um, it's used very loosely in modern times. It has three different primary meanings. Um, the most common modern interpretation is an inward personal struggle to attain perfect faith. Um, the other one, uh, which is really the more Quranic and follows the Hadith, is a conquest to rid the earth of unbelievers through military conquest. And then it could also be used generally just to describe war. But number two is um, really adheres more closely to what Muhammad believed and in um, what's in the Quran and Hadith. Um, many peaceful Muslims and non-Muslims will emphasize number one, saying that the word means struggle, means a struggle to be a good Muslim, and that is true. Um, but Muhammad's use of the term at the majority of the time was violent context, as I just described. Um, okay, so here's some of the things that jihad can include. Jihad of the sword, military conquest to convert unbelievers, uh, they either have the choice to convert or die. Um, you see this with ISIS um, happening right now. Um, jihad of taxation. Uh, those who refuse to convert have to pay a special tax called the jizya. This is happening in a lot of different countries right now where there's 90 plus percent Muslim. And if the people want to stay there, they have to pay this special tax. Um, 
Some countries give financial rewards or free education to people that convert. Um, there's a movement in Saudi Arabia to do, to do just that. Um, and they're very, very big on trying to get people over, especially Westerners, to, to come over to there. We have really good friends of our family that just got a job over there. And um, it's just very interesting kind of watching that process. Um, uh, the death penalty is given to anyone that renounces Islam openly. So that's part of jihad as well. Every sect has a different um, uh, view of severe, severe uh, punishment for uh, apostate Muslims, but all of them are severe is what I'm trying to say. So um, if you deny Islam and you recant Islam, um, you become apostate, and just about every sect has a very severe punishment for that. Most of them are death. All right, so a few verses from um, the Quran on jihad. Um, and remember, we talked about last week how over time, Muhammad's revelations became more and more severe, more and more violent. When he was in Medina, uh, when he first started, you know, there's only a couple hundred followers at that point. A lot of his stuff was a lot more peaceful. And a lot of the Quran was written in those early years. So he had, um, you know, a lot more peaceful. But as he started raiding caravans, as he, as he went into Mecca, uh, everything started to become more violent. And Surah 9, which is what we'll read, most of these we'll read, are from Surah 9. That's the last one that he wrote. So I kind of think of it as sort of his marching orders. Very violent, the most violent, really, uh, Surah in the, in the Quran. So Surah 9, let's read a few of these. Uh, 9.123, believers make war on the infidels who, who dwell around you and deal firmly with them. Um, a lot of times, just so you know, infidels um, could be also be translated unbelievers. And literally, in some of the early uh, manuscripts, it's actually literally uh, polytheists. So the people that just don't believe in that one true God of Allah. Um, the next one down, I shall cast terror into the hearts of the infidels, strike off their heads, strike off the very tips of their fingers. That was because they defied God and his apostle. Surah 2, fighting is obligatory for you. Surah 17, you shall not kill any man who, whom God has forbidden you to kill except for a just cause. Um, and a just cause is considered jihad. Slay the idolaters wherever you find them and take them captives and besiege them and lie in wait for them in every ambush. Fight those who do not believe in Allah. O prophet, make war on the unbelievers and hypocrites and deal rigorously with them. Their homes shall be, shall be hell. So modern Muslims look at these differently. Um, the majority will still kind of fall back on this idea that... Um, Islam is peaceful, <laughs> but they'll, they'll say a lot of these you can kind of um, interpret as being more of our struggle, and they won't take a lot of these things literally. And remember, in mosques, they don't sit like we do and look at, take, do like an exegetical study verse by verse. They just don't do that. They really look uh, and they rely very heavily on the interpretation of, the, of their imams. But again, as more literature comes out and you start reading Surah 9, and then you pick up your hadith and see the things that Muhammad actually did. You, you, there's only one conclusion, um, is that, that Islam, in its truest sense, is, is a very violent religion if you choose to interpret it that way, which there's really not many ways around that, in my opinion. Okay, so some examples of, um, of radical groups, Hamas, Muslim Brotherhood, Taliban, Al-Qaeda, Boko Haram, Al-Shabaab, ones that you've heard of before. Um, these are kind of the traditional radical groups. They've, many of them have been around for quite some time. Uh, their primary purpose is to drive out the West, Christianity, Jews, secularism. They, they want to institute Sharia law. Um, they tend to be very politically mo motivated. That's why there's a lot of infighting between them. 
um, just like it was back in Muhammad's day. Uh, and most of those groups that I mentioned are, um, are Sunni-based groups. There's this new, um, in the last 15, 20 years, and um, has anybody heard of Joel Rosenberg? He writes great books. They're uh, largely fiction, but he does some nonfiction as well. And he really gets heavily into this. And um, it's, it's really interesting to see that there's this subgroup of radical Islam that uh, he calls apocalyptic Islam. And they really believe that they, we are in the end times and it's their duty to bring about the end of the world. Um, so they, they, you know, they say the end times are here. Um, they're trying to usher in the Mahdi or the 12th Imam and Jesus. Um, depending, again, depending on the sect, they believe different things. But Sunnis, I was surprised to, to um, find this out, they also believe in the 12th Imam. They also believe Jesus coming back, just in a different way. So they're still looking for the end times. So the primary groups that are in this kind of apocalyptic vein or sect um, is Iran, Hezbollah, which is uh, in Lebanon. They're heavily funded by Iran. And then ISIS. That's kind of the newest one on the scene. Traditionally, we haven't seen terrorists or radical groups that are uh, apocalyptic in nature, but ISIS is one of these big ones that's finally come on the scene, and they, they really believe that they're bringing about this global caliphate and the end of the world. So, and for the moment, Shia Muslims, so Iran, Hezbollah, other groups, they're against ISIS. Like, politically, it doesn't, they're, they're, their goals don't really match up. Um, but so as these other groups like Al-Qaeda, Taliban, they're largely politically motivated, um, as well as religious, but a lot more heavily politi political. The apocalyptic Muslims, they're way more um, motivated by their theology. So uh, especially their end times, their eschatology. A um, few stats on, on ISIS. I, I really chose not to go too deep into ISIS because it's just the amount of information that you can get now is just huge. It's just such a huge topic. But a uh, few things here. 92% uh, of Saudis say that ISIS conforms to Islamic law. 50% of British Muslims support ISIS. 38% uh, of U.S. Muslims support ISIS. Um, there is, a, as you know, uh, you heard in the news, very, very heavy use of social media um, and recruitment tactics. And again, what they do is they're not just using uh, rhetoric. They're actually using the original texts to say this is what true Islam is. And then they're putting that out in things like uh, the uh, Dabik magazine. Um, and ISIS has really capitalized on that availability of these, of these texts. Um, you guys have, may have heard of uh, Salafi Islam. Um, in the Hadith, Muhammad says, the, the Salaf will be the closest to me in truth. The Salafis are the three generations of Muslims after Muhammad died. They are the radical fundamentalists. Um, and so when people try to emulate early Islam, they end up looking like Salafis, whether they identify as that or not. Um, the pockets of Salafi Islam growing uh, the quickest are in Saudi Arabia, Egypt, Pakistan, Indonesia. Um, traditionally, Sunni Islam has been more moderate, but with the, the growth of Salafi Islam, it's becoming more radicalized. So ISIS, um, most of them would consider themselves Salafis because they're going back to the original beliefs of Muhammad. And then another term you've probably heard of is Wahhabism. Um, this is another very ultra-orthodox uh, ultra uh, version of Islam and sect. Uh, they take a very literal interpretation of um, the Quran and Hadith. Uh, most Wahhabs um, and Salafis um, are kind of interchangeable. So they actually don't prefer that term of uh, Wahhabi. They prefer the Salaf term. 
uh, but it's used often interchangeably. You've probably, anytime you hear about Saudi Arabia and Islam, you've probably heard this term, Wahhabis, because the majority are in Saudi Arabia. Um, and just as an example, I've given many examples of Saudi Arabia because in many ways they're leaders of, of Sunni thought and Islamic thought around the world. But, um, you know, if you go and you drive into Mecca today, um, there are signs all over the place on the road that say, if you're an unbeliever, you will be killed if you come into this area. And so Saudi Arabia, even though it, you know, it was radical before, it's becoming more and more radical as people are um, understanding um, some of these original texts and works and things like that. Uh, a few more stats. Um, a lot of these stats come from a, a major uh, Pew Research poll, by the way, uh, 2013. Um, these are, this is Muslims worldwide. 69% want Sharia as law. 40% death, uh, favor death for apostasy, so if someone leaves Islam. 52% favor death for adultery. 48% believe polygamy is moral. 51% favor, favor corporal punishment. Uh, for, uh, 24% believe honor killings are justified. Um, that's a big, big deal, too, honor killings. Um, and it's, it's tragic. It's, it's so sad. And, and this book, again, that I'm reading, um, is a story of a woman that, she, I think she was like 21, and she got saved online. She, she got a vision, went online, tried to figure out who Jesus was and everything. Uh, and she um, became such a strong Christian, she was actually counseling other Muslims that were receiving dreams in chat rooms online. And for almost a year, she did this. And her brother found out. And her brother um, did some awful things. I won't describe, I won't describe but he you know, eventually killed her, but tortured her and killed her. And that's uh, viewed as completely legal in most of these countries. It's, it's considered an honor killing. So that they've brought dishonor on the family, and they don't even need to go to the courts. The, the family can actually carry that out for, the, for them. Um, um, and, and the reason why that story was uh, publicized in this book is because um, when he found out, she locked herself in her bedroom and she typed out a bunch of things um, to her on her um, to all of her Christian friends. You know that this is happening and I'm saying goodbye and everything. And um, it, was, uh, it was it was a really powerful story. All right. Um, we talked about how there's 1.7 billion Muslims in the world. Um, it's been estimated from um, polls and various research that there's about 7 to 10% that are radicals. So this would mean there's somewhere between 120, 170 million radicals. Um, that's just to give you kind of an idea. That's equivalent to about half the population of the U.S. <clears throat> um, another study that came out um, pretty recently is showing that uh, Muslim converts, um, 40% of them, and remember, 90 plus percent are moderate. They believe Islam is a religion of peace. But 40% of the new converts are becoming radicalized. Um, so you can, that movement towards radicalization is really exponentially growing, and a lot of the studies are showing that. Um, a poll from Muslims worldwide is terrorism for Islam justified. Uh, 5% often, 10% sometimes, 12% rarely, 77% never. Um, percentage of population that approves of attacks on Americans. You can, you can see those there. Um, one third, this was a shocking one at the very bottom of this list here. One third of all Muslims and Poles have, have uh, condoned the 9-11 attacks. Um, so you'll see, even though we, t- we said, you know, 7 to 10% are radicalized, a much larger portion um, think that terrorism in the right 
uh, scenario, you know, for the right reasons is, can be justified. Some examples of, uh, of violence, just uh, the last hundred or so years. Um, one of the biggest ones is, is Sudan, two million. Uh, Rwanda, Indonesia, a uh, number of waves of persecution of Christians in um, Armenia. Um, and that goes all the way back to um, the 19th century. Um, there was a time frame there between 1915 and 1918 that I'm, I'm still learning the, um, the history of this, but roughly 80% of Armenians were actually killed or wiped out. Uh, it was a major, major genocide that happened then. Um, Uganda, um, and this really doesn't include kind of the state-mandated murder of, of Christians and Jews in, in a lot of these different countries. Um, most of those countries, there's very, very few non-Muslims that are living there, um, especially in a place like Saudi Arabia. We've talked about if, if you were living as a non-Muslim, you were living in absolute secrecy. <clears throat> um, and if you do live in some of these countries, like we talked about, there's special taxes. You have to do certain things. You're segregated. You can expect a tax at any time. Um, there's a site that uh, goes through and catalogs since 9-11 all the different terrorist attacks, and it goes through and, and lists them. There's, and the, as of yesterday, or last night, there was 29,000 people killed um, since 9-11 in terrorist attacks. Uh, in the last 30 days, 161 attacks in 23 countries, 1,100 dead. So, and you can see on their graphs that this is growing exponentially. Uh, we also have the original conquests of Islam between the 7th and 14th centuries. Uh, within two, 200 years of Muhammad's death, the Muslims, we talked about this last week again, um, had conquered all of North Africa, Spain, um, all the Arabian Peninsula, most of the Middle East, and all done at that time in the name of jihad. From the 9th to the, the 12th centuries, this is kind of the time of the, of the Crusades, and we don't obviously have time to get into that, but um, initially, I think this is largely misunderstood as well, because it's usually the, the evil Christians that are kind of focused on there, and, and don't get me wrong, uh, in the Crusades, the, in the name of Christianity, there were some horrible things that were done, but they were defensive in nature, the Crusades, uh, largely because of Muslim aggression. Um, the ultimate goal of Islam is world conquest, and all the above examples of genocide, murder, were all done in the name of Allah and jihad, especially those few hundred years after Muhammad. And the Quran says in Surah 2, 193, fight them until there was no persecution and the religion is Allah's only. That's, that's the end goal. That's the end game for them. Um, you know, as the Quran and Hadith talk about the end times, it speaks about how every Jew and Christian will be wiped off the face of the earth. Um, and in the last day, if a Jew or Christian is hiding under a rock, the rock will shout out, there's a Jew under me, kill him. All right. Any questions before we go ahead, Dale? Thanks for sharing that. My daughter has a little girl, but she wanted to know uh, 
I don't think so. I don't think so. I don't think that that behavior was as common. Um, an example just off the top of my head is ISIS has been dipping people in acid. And they, there's nothing they could go back to in the Hadith or whatever to justify that. But um, they, they take the, um, the theme or the idea of, of that and um, of what they read in the Hadith and, and then carry out similar things, yeah, so... That's my understanding. Yeah, I think um, one of the biggest things that's helped, that's changed my understanding of, of Islam is that there's just so many different forms of it. You know what I mean? So for us, it would be like Catholicism and Mormonism and all these, they're very, very different in a lot of cases. So yeah, I think it's just a case by case. It's my understanding. Okay, so just a couple things here. We just have a couple more minutes. Um, it seems like such a common question out there is, 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 is Islam a religion of peace? Um, and I think it's really impossible to answer that unless you kind of qualify it. Um, nowhere in any Muslim document does it claim that Islam is a religion of peace. Um, that really didn't come about until about the 20th century. Um, and this emerged in India as a way to kind of make Islam more palatable um, to, the, to the British. Um, and so that that really hasn't come in, that concept hasn't really come in until recent times. Um, can Islam be practiced peacefully? You know, absolutely. You know, if those more violent uh, components are not ad adhered to. And are there peaceful Muslims? Are there good Muslims? Of course, the vast majority are. Um, but does the religion of Muhammad, that Muhammad left us with endorse violence? And it's just unequivocal, absolutely, if you look at the original text. Um, so... So what are, what's our reaction as Christians? Um, you know, there's been more Christians martyred in the 20th and 21st century than the previous 19 put together. Um, and there are currently 200 million Christians um, facing persecution in 105 countries. Most of those are Islamic. Go ahead, Annabelle. I don't know. I don't know. I think it would depend on the country and what the situation was. It's um, a good question. Let me get through this section really quick. Um, so our reaction, I think how we respond to this is so huge, and I think that the world will look at how Christians respond to the persecution, um, and that will define us in, in a lot of ways. But it's not, I, I think the initial gut reaction, especially if you, you know, watch, um, you know, Fox News or some of, the, some of those kinds of things, the initial reaction is, you know, how do we defend ourselves? How do we protect ourselves physically and things like that? And I think as Christians, um, it, it really, our first reaction shouldn't be how do we defend our current way of life? How do we, um, how do we buy more guns? How do we defend ourselves and things like that? I, th I think the reaction initially should be, Lord, how do we minister to these people? How do we um, empathize with them? How do, you, how do we have open doors to speak with them? It's, that first re reaction should not be fear in any way. 
Um, 2 Timothy 3.12 says, everyone that desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. So when we're suffering persecution, we're doing something right. And if you look at persecution historically um, in like China and some of these other places where we've seen these huge waves and we've been able to look back at historically, you've seen just massive, massive growth of the Christian church during those, in those uh, contexts of persecution. And so as Christians, um, you know this, but um, it's a good reminder. We, there's, we have no reason for fear. We have no reason for suffering, death, or persecution. And um, as I've gone through this personally, it's, you kind of uh, get introspective and you kind of think about what if that persecution came in our world, in our, our culture? You know, what, what would we do? How would we react? What, what would our day-to-day lives look like if that was just a common thing? If somebody could knock on our door and take us away at any given moment? Would that change the way we're living? Does that change the way we're praying? Does that change the way we're interacting with our neighbors? Um, those are all things that I think we need to look at. And we, we, we live in a, a, a very a surprisingly safe little pocket of the world at the moment. Um, but the context in which there's so many Christians in persecution at the moment, they deal with this every single day. Um, and we, we need to remember them. We need to pray for them. Um, a couple quick little last notes, and then we'll open it up for just a few questions. Um, sharing with Muslims. Um, I've, I've read a lot about Muslims that came to Christ, um, and th- there's actually been surveys done with this, and uh, the, the one survey that I was able to find um, of Christian converts, and you know, first of all, the vast majority of them um, received a dream or vision, um, so that, that's huge. But in this one survey as well, 100% of the people said that they were influenced through a relationship um, and love shown by a Christian in their lives. So it was, uh, first of all, I think three things, potentially. Dream or vision, um, the love of a Christian in their life that God put in their life, um, and then going to their own scriptures and going to the Bible and, and seeing, um, seeing all the problems with, with their own, and then, and then seeing um, really the, who Christ is, you know, and, and a lot of them don't understand that. So uh, the main um, key point I'm I'm going to read a little quote by Walter Martin. Um, The key topics of discussion between a Christian and a Muslim should be the nature of God, the identity and deity of Jesus Christ, and salvation by grace alone apart from works. Um, And if you you know Walter Martin, he was a great apologist to many different religions. And the the main thing that I've seen from a lot of these people that have become Christians said that um, the main thing for them was leading with Christ. Very, very, very few of them went to their books first and had all these problems. And, and again, remember, the, that authority structure is so key that it's ingrained in them to not question their original works. It's, they're not supposed to question the imams, the teachers, what's been going on at the mosque, what's in the Quran. And so it, what a lot of these people are saying is you lead with Jesus and talk about Jesus, and then you can go in. If they have questions, if they bring it up, then you can talk about that. So, um, Yeah. Uh, last page here, by the way, is a bunch of resources, um, list of experts, um, helpful websites, and things like that. But um, that's that's most of what I wanted to cover. So, just one or two minutes for questions. If you guys have any, yeah. He's a prophet. He's equivalent to like Abraham or Ishmael or he's just another prophet. Yeah. 
And they just believe that um, any of the scriptures, like Old Testament, New Testament, there's some truths in there, but they've been corrupted. The texts have been corrupted at some point. And so what we have as the New Testament, they wouldn't really look at as reliable in any way. Jesus is mentioned in the Quran a number of times. Is mentioned in Hadith, and it's just their own, their own version of historical events, you know. And uh, one of the things that um, my, my my absolute favorite guy. If you really want to dig more into this, I would strongly recommend you go to Nabil Qureshi. Um, he, I've learned so so much from him. There's a um, an eight hour course that he did at Biola uh, that I watched the whole thing. It's just phenomenal. But he talked about how when he started looking at Christianity, his his view was that it was totally corrupted, that um, the, the New Testament works were hundreds of years afterwards, and uh, they had all kinds of textual problems, and they were copies of copies and copies. And once he really realized that, you know, we have a copy of the book of Mark only 20 years after Jesus, you know, and, and most modern scholarship is saying it's even earlier than that. You know, we, we have all the Gospels within 50 years of Jesus' life and so many different things. Um, that he's mentioned in uh, historical records more than any, just about any other um, secular personality. You know, like as an example is Tiberius, the emperor of Rome. He's mentioned eight times. Jesus is mentioned over 200 times in secular sources from that time period. So it's, the evidence is overwhelming, and I think there's just a lot of misinformation. And once he dug into that, he really realized that he, he spent two years looking into the life of Jesus and all the texts, and then he went to his sources and said, wait a minute, you know, my sources are horrible compared to this. So, yeah. No, no. They believe he just died. Yeah. They think that his claim, which is represented in the New Testament, is corrupted. He never claimed to be God. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So those works are corrupted. Yeah. This goes back to last week, but uh, the first part you saw about the Arabs and sentence to Abraham. Mm-hmm. So, no, the answer here, do we know where they come in? Where does that whole deal start? Where Arabs come in? Uh, it's talked a little bit about on that, la- that sheet from last week. Um, the secular histor- historians will say Catan, uh, I think is his name, is sort of the, um, the father of the Arabs. Um, and then I was just looking at this week at, uh, is actually the, um, um, what Sean was talking about on Sunday. Um, I think it was Peleg was a lot of the, um, the names, his, his sons and grandsons, a lot of the Arab names are, are derivatives of those, of those names, so they believe that it's off of that line of Peleg where a lot of the, the Arabs come in. The problem is that it's um, all oral. You know, all their um, genealogies, everything's oral. We talked about that. I mean, Arabic didn't even come in until very, very late. So they don't, it, it's not like, um, uh, like the Old Testament, you know, where you have the, the Masoretes where they're, you know, look, they're every single little jot and tittle, they're copying down, and if they mess up, they throw it all away, you know. They just don't have that. Their tradition's all oral, so, yeah. That's a, part of the reason why, and maybe it is the case, but you could never prove it historically that they came from Ishmael, never. I mean, you're, you're talking about thousands of years of lost genealogies, so...
Go ahead, Anima. I've heard that you can't, but you could get pretty close. So there's gaps. There's like generational gaps, but you can get pretty darn close. And most Jews today will at least believe that they have, they're from a certain, certain group. So, anything else? Last question. Go ahead, Ty. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The exciting thing about what's going on in Muslim countries is just that for whatever reason, God is just showing himself just in a huge, huge way. Um, and I'll, I'll close with this. There's a ministry we um, have loved for the last few years. It's called Iran Alive. And they're based in the U.S. And it's a satellite TV program. And they beam into Iran where... Really, there's just no access. You, you can't get in. It's a closed country. But if you, it's so interesting. It's like a lot of places in Africa. There's just a ton of people have satellite dishes. You could have a little shack, but you have a satellite dish. And so they get these pirated channels in, and people are getting saved through things like that, and people are so hungry. So they'll get a vision. They'll have no idea who to talk to because their entire world is Muslim, and they'll turn on the TV, and all of a sudden somebody's talking about Jesus, and it's just God is just moving in a huge way over there. So let's pray. Lord, we love you, Lord. We, we thank you that you, um, you've given us an opportunity to, um, to study these things so freely, Lord God, and I pray you'd help us to just not take advantage of um, the freedom that we have and that you'd give us a heart and give us uh, just a mind to pray, Lord, for um, these people that are being persecuted so heavily, our brothers and sisters, God, and that we would just not take advantage of um, uh, the freedoms, Lord, but we would... Um, use them, Lord. You say to whom much is given, much is required, Lord. And I just pray you would help us to um, do everything that we possibly can. And, and uh, you pray you to open up doors um, to minister to Muslims in our country and, and fund missions in other countries. And I pray you would just continue the awesome work that you're doing over there, Lord. Expand our hearts to uh, love these people and to not be, uh, not react in fear to these things, Lord, but just react in, in love and uh, understand that you love these people. And And so we just praise your name, um, in your name, Jesus. Amen. Thank you, guys.